This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on Zoom calls all day, having to wear a mask everywhere, and now using your eyes and your eyes only to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite line of brow products that are so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, you can have the most amazing brows ever. They have an amazing range of products from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, and gels. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. All right, y'all. Um, I am so excited today to be talking with two of the founders of Asian American Feminist Collective. And I stumbled onto their site and on Instagram. And if you are able to go see it, you should. Uh, and got really excited because the group and the platform is an amazing platform that talks about what it is to be Asian American feminist and also being allies and pushing forward in a revolution in a time that we really need to have the conversation of what is racism and why is it so harmful and imp- impactful and how does it even affect uh, communities of colors and specifically the Asian American community and why we need to have a bigger conversation on being a good ally. And I'm completely fangirling right now a little bit, so I'm having a hard time <laughs> using all my words because they are powerhouses and every time I see or look up what they're doing is intimidating. Y'all are intimidating. I just want to put that out there. So excuse my uh, whew, mumbling, but can you introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, definitely. Well, we're really excited to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Um, my name is Senti Sojwal, and I'm a co-founder and co-leader of the Asian American Feminist Collective. I am based in Brooklyn. I'm a native New Yorker, and I'm a first-generation South Asian American. Um, I'm Indian, and I moved to the U.S. when... I was four. And so I'm really excited to be talking to you about cross-racial solidarity in this moment because I think it's something our communities are really hungry for um, and something we really need to be talking about. Yeah. And I'm Saloni Bauman. I'm also a co-leader of the Asian American Feminist Collective, though actually not a co-founder. I joined about a year ago. I'm also a first-generation South Asian American. I'm Indian. And I moved to the U.S. Um, when I was about eight years old. And I'm originally from Los Angeles, or I mean, I'm originally from India. But <laughs> I grew up in Los Angeles, and um, this is my 10th year in New York City, which is where I'm based. But I'm so excited to have this conversation. I think it's something that's been kind of on all of our radars for a long time, um, not just being a good ally, but how to really be in solidarity with a movement for liberation and think about kind of collective liberation. and. Um, None of us are free until we all get free, you know? And again, I, I am so excited to have you on because I've, I've shared with our audience, we've been talking about issues of allyship and what it means to not only be not racist, but anti-racist and why that's an important conversation. And for me, myself, I've had a huge struggle in being an Asian woman raised by white people. So I, I was adopted and I came into the U.S. when I was seven. 
And I love my family dearly, but it absolutely is ingrained with the whole modern racist idea. And growing up in that environment, fighting that growing up and knowing that I was somehow being lessered because I was a brown person underneath a white family who I was supposed to show how grateful I am (laughs) and in being able to be in that environment but never be equal to that has always been a struggle for me because I'm also a social worker who decided to leave that field to come into this conversation. And being a social worker was partially due to the fact that I feel like I owe people. And there's this ingrained thought process in me, and I I had to really like pull it apart of what that meant. And that meant being grateful to the white community. And I feel like this is not just me. My circumstance is a little different, but when I see a lot of immigration and refugee situations, and I've seen anti-Black and racist attitudes, is because they also have that kind of attitude and learning of, I have to be grateful. I have to prove myself into that world. And in order to do that, that means I must be for what they are fighting as well. So if white community is fighting being the dominant community and being the superior race, then obviously we have to be allied to that. Or that's that ingrained mindset and being grateful. So yeah, and I I think I wanted to talk about a little bit. So what does that look like to break that down? I mean, can you, maybe it's just me, in breaking that thought process down and understanding this is what oppression is. Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of people have had really similar experiences to you. And I also think like thinking about our responsibility and role in this moment as non-Black people of color is really complicated and I think requires quite a bit of real reflection. I think that where the tension lies often is in the fact that, you know, as immigrants and as people of color, our communities have been through a lot. Our communities have struggled and been oppressed, you know, politically, economically, have suffered racism. And so I think that sometimes where the tension lies is that, you know, we see Asian people really sort of resistant to aligning themselves with Black struggle because I think that the instinct is to be like, well, you know, I really suffered too. And I also have dealt with white supremacy in my experience in my life. So why should I be expected to show up for this community or this movement or these people when I feel like my struggles are being ignored? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I see that tension as sort of like the gut reaction. And I think that gut reaction is also part of white supremacy. And that's also something that we have to dismantle. Absolutely. And I also think that We have a tremendous amount of similarity in our experiences as immigrants and as Asian Americans, but also a tremendous amount of diversity. We're a heterogeneous community. And I think that AFC's actually had a whole lot of transnational adoptees actually come into our space in the last few months and share their experiences with us. And, you know, that's not my experience, for example, but I still believe that we can have community and comradeship and really learn from each other there. I think applying that same logic to sort of examining our differences, acknowledging our positionality in sort of a larger struggle and approaching Black liberation as something that we must be invested in is really important. I'm rambling a little bit, but I had a professor once who said, her name's Crystal Feimster, she's very brilliant, but she actually once phrased it as white supremacy is incredibly flexible and incredibly adaptable. So it has all sorts of new tools that it always applies. And whether that's pitting different 
uh, communities against each other or kind of positioning Asian Americans as a model minority in order to act as a wedge against a certain kind of solidarity. Um, the logics of white supremacy are constantly evolving to meet the conditions it's presented with. And I think that an awareness of that is so important if we um, really seek to dismantle it. Thank you. I realize I just jumped into that. I'm very, this has been a thought process for me and it's been something that I've been working out for a while. So I'm like, oh my God, let me ask you. (laughs) But to backtrack a little bit, can you kind of tell us about AAFC and how it came about? Yeah, definitely. So we really came together in the aftermath of the 2016 election, seeing, I think, this huge sort of groundswell of feminist activism that happened right after Trump was elected, but then also really seeing our communities and our voices really um, not present in that movement. You know, I think that many of us went to the Women's March, and I think that there was like just so much action happening right then. But again, as so many times, as we have seen in feminist activism, it really feels like it's a movement, or I should say mainstream feminist activism, really feels like it's led for and by cisgender white women who experience economic privilege and whose problems are very different from the problems of many of us who are feminists. And so I think like really seeing a lack of Asian American voices in that space, we sort of came together pretty informally, a group of us to host like some workshops and sort of like open community forums about Asian American feminism in the age of Trump. You know, how can we also draw on our histories and our communities in this moment to think about what liberation and justice um, and gender justice looks like for us in this moment? And so after sort of seeing the popularity of that first event series really sort of pop off, we realized oh, we really need to formalize this. And this is actually a space that there's so much hunger for. But oftentimes, like so many people like us, I think like queer Asians, trans Asians, brown Asians, multiracial Asians really didn't see um, an Asian American movement that was really focused on our progressive politics. And so yeah, we launched formally later in 2017. And since that time, We have hosted a lot of different kinds of like community workshops and panels, collaborated with different institutions across New York. And yeah, we're really just focused on growing our movement and creating a space for our community to come together and get engaged politically and also like really create a space for that identity exploration and support that so many of us felt like we never had. Solani, how did you get involved? I came on, so I was actually up in New Haven. I was in graduate school um, when AFC had their first launch event. I was very sad to miss it, but quickly uh, came to every single one after that. Senti and I were friends and had kind of met out in the real world because we were the only two brown girls at a party and um, found each other like two magnets. So Mm -hmm. there was kind of an instant solidarity there. Right. And I was thrilled when the four co-founders asked me to kind of be part of the collective about a year later. And yeah, since I think our first kind of foray all together was last fall, we had a second year birthday party. Um, It was a wonderful celebration. We're very sad that we probably won't be having one in person in September this year. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to say when I saw it, I got really excited. I was very (laughs) excited. And I'm like, man, 
I wish I was in New York right now. I will say a lot of y'all are much younger than me. <laughs> and I love that. I love seeing uh, this community grow and how uh, affirming you are, not only to each other, it seems, but to other organizations outside of yourself and making sure you're an ally and being a part of that. And that was kind of one of the big things. I think I caught on to you when I was looking at another link. And it was kind of a intersectional communication between, um, uh, I think, a Black feminist uh, movement with y'all, and you were doing um, a book club together, which I was like, yes, I need all of these things. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about why that's so important that we are inclusive and we do try to collaborate outside of just your own organization? Yeah, definitely. So I think like maybe it would be helpful if we started a little bit just sort of talking about this political moment, even before some of the like, you know, civil rights uprisings for racial justice that we're seeing right now. So when the COVID-19 pandemic started, we were really seeing um, a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and prejudice, um, which was really, you know, supported by our racist president saying things like Kung flu and Chinese virus. And so all of this anti-Asian sentiment was happening while we were also seeing that the community that was most affected by COVID was the Black community. Um, racial disparities in health and access to healthcare have always existed, and we've really seen how this moment has exacerbated a lot of those things. And so we released a zine. Our co-founder, Rachel, who's a brilliant scholar, really sort of helmed this project where we put together a zine called Care in the Time of Coronavirus that really looked towards Asian and Asian American like histories of care and care work and examining what it means to come together as a community. And we had a lot of really amazing writers and activists um, and artists come together to help create that project that really looked at how Asian Americans were experiencing this crisis. And then, you know, not soon afterwards, we were really sort of seeing more of like the racial impacts of how COVID-19 was really hitting the Black community much, much harder than a lot of other communities. And so it was really interesting to begin kind of thinking about what's cross-racial solidarity means and looks like in this moment where our two communities were being impacted by this virus, obviously in different ways, but um, it was really top of mind for us to begin thinking more strategically about what that solidarity looks like and means. And so, yeah, we collaborated with our friend Jamie, who runs this organization, Black Women Radicals. Um, and we had an Instagram live conversation about Black Asian solidarity. And, you know, since then, it's something, obviously, with everything that's going on that we have been thinking about really deeply. And I think to kind of get to your other point, Sam, too, the way that collaboration has worked for us is kind of where we put our time and energy and care also. And I think there's really no shortcut to um, building relationships, maintaining friendships, really enjoying the people that you're organizing with and taking the time to listen to what they need, what they're hoping to get out of a collaboration and partnership, things like that. And what I've really been struck by as someone who's kind of new, I feel often feel new to like the New York City activism scene um, is that there is so much wonderful work being done and there's really um, no time or space for ego right now. You know, I think amplifying mm -hmm. the voices of great work that's being done in collectives that are not our collectives, in missions that align with ours, but aren't um, necessarily the entirety of our mission is so important because 
Um, it's only through kind of that kind of coalition and relationship building that we're ever going to come up with a mass movement. And I think what was so great about that conversation with Jamie or those initial conversations with Jamie is that we've kind of taken the time to have space where we can really talk about the similarities and differences in our experiences without kind of engaging in the weird like oppression Olympics that sometimes comes out. And I think when I mm -hmm. say comparing similarities and differences, I'm, I almost hear myself become cautious because I'm sure you've heard the kind of conversation I'm talking about where someone says, this has been my experience of racism or anti-Blackness and how I've experienced it. And then you'll see someone jump in and say, oh, that's just like this thing that happened to me. And it's almost like talking right. over someone. It's right. something different and sort of being like, wow, that reminds me of the way my community has been used or the way that my community has experienced white supremacy and how can we build together rather than, and so your experience doesn't matter. Um, I think in kind of making space for the fact that we all have different things to bring to the table and understanding that is very important. I'm right. kind of rambling, but yes. So no, that's exactly, I know that's one of the big things that we have talked about on our show is why does there seem to be such limited and I say that in quotes, space for these conversations as if we only have enough space to talk about this one thing and we can't look at the whole big picture, whether it's to say, again, yeah, this is the marginalization that we want to talk about because there's not enough for all of this. Or if it's success, oh, this one woman did it, so we can't talk about this other woman. You know, it's right. kind of like, why is this need to have limited amount of space and why is it specific to typically women and those of color. <laughs> Why is that limit so small? And I think that's a great point that you talk about with, even with the fact of being through some type of harassment or through uh, prejudice, that has to be limited to somehow. <laughs> Instead of being, yeah, it's bad. It's all bad. That's not what we're focusing on. That's another conversation, but it's not necessarily a limited place, which, yes, thank you. And you were talking more about the whole um, allyship and such. I think we were talking, just in general, what does that look like today? What does that look like for myself, for you who are brown but not black? What does allyship look like? Yeah, I think that, you know, Saloni brings up a really great point, which is that, you know, solidarity at the end of the day is really about relationships and who you are in relationship with and how you practice community care. Like, I think that there, are so many institutions and groups and people that we see today, I think, who know exactly what to say and can like package their statements in a way that is like pretty and speaks to people. But at the end of the day, like whose team are you on? Who are you fighting for? And also like, what are you willing to give up? Like what space are you willing to relinquish to really pursue collective liberation for all of us. And I think through thinking through a lot of this, like we have also really committed to the fact that solidarity is messy and anti-racism work actually doesn't always feel good, nor should it. And mm -hmm. it's not always going to be something that you feel like you're great at. And that's actually not the point. Um, the point is like to learn and grow and I think be willing to get messy and so I think for us, like, solidarity means, like, explicitly naming, definitely, that we're not all affected by racial injustice in the same way, but asking, like, what can we actually do together to create a world where all of our communities 
can thrive and live with the opportunity that we deserve. And so I think being in solidarity means listening first and foremost. I also think it means like examining the spaces in your life where you do have privilege and looking at how you are going to take up space in those places in order to further an anti-racist agenda. And, you know, that can look all kinds of different ways. Um, And I think that it's something that we are still very much figuring out. And I think also for Asian Americans in particular, there are certain aspects of this that are definitely very specific to our communities as wide and varied as our communities are. I think that anti-Black racism is a common thread in many, many Asian and Asian American communities. And we really need to own that and examine it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that we have to kind of be really candid with ourselves and um, vulnerable about where we need to change. And I think that comes Santi was saying kind of acknowledging where you have privilege and where you can kind of spend some of that privilege to redistribute your power. That requires an analysis of power and how things work, right? Knowing which spaces that you're taken seriously in and how you're going to bring people in. Being really candid when perhaps you're coveting an opportunity because you're the only one in the running for it because of something, you know, the way something has been structured. I often think that some of our work right now is to also think about Um, and really examine if we have any collective discomfort around taking the lead from Black leaders and kind of letting them define what this moment means, um, what the work should be in this moment, what's most helpful for us to do in this moment, how to kind of show up and what kinds of showing up are most helpful. Because I feel like, you know, there's ebbs and flows of urgency in certain kinds of activism. And right now we're in a really urgent moment. And so I think being willing to say, like, I'll take your lead and tell me what to do is kind of critical at this moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I also do want to name some, like, very specific things that I think all of us should be doing, but as Asian Americans, like, some very specific things that we can commit to. Um, I think, like, you know, committing to never calling the cops, no matter what, like, actually committing to re-envisioning different ways that justice and accountability and care can happen in our communities. We're obviously in a moment, I think, where people are learning a lot more about prison and police abolition than ever before, but understanding that as fundamentally a racial justice issue that we can also commit to through daily behavior, like refusing to call the cops and also educating our families about why defunding and dismantling police systems is a movement that we should be involved in. And, you know, I think in terms of like listening, like social media is such an amazing way to be able to learn from Black leadership, especially people like Black trans women who we probably are not going to see have a national stage in the way that they deserve, but we can really take it upon ourselves to do that work of self-education so that we're not asking Black people to educate us. We've seen so much support recently of bail funds and a lot of really well-known Black-led organizations. But I also think donate more than just to bail funds in this moment if you can. The money that we donate to bail funds goes back into this horrible system of oppression that we're actively working to create. So can you actually donate some of your money to grassroots organizations led by Black, trans, and queer people? Can you donate that money to progressive Black people who are running for office? 
And so I think just being really intentional about where the money is going that you're donating. And I also think like educating our families. I would say that's one of the biggest things that, you know, Saloni and I and our work with AAFC get asked about is people saying like, my family is anti-Black. How, how do I possibly begin this education work with them? Right. We have a lot more of our conversation for you listeners, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. So we know, listeners, it's been rough for a lot of people out there, and we've been very open about our experiences with therapy and how it's been so helpful for us in the past and in the present. And because of that, we wanted to highlight a service that we think might be of help to you all, BetterHelp, which offers licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and to help. You can talk with your counselors in a private online environment at your own convenience from wherever you're comfortable. And BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas. They can give you access to help that might not be available in your area. And you just have to fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs and then get matched with a counselor in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is an affordable option and our listeners get 10% off your first month with a discount code MOMSTUFF. Get started today at betterhelp.com slash momstuff. That's better com slash momstuff. Talk to a therapist online and get help. This episode is brought to you by Chinet. The Chinet brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness. Yes, and right now that is more important than ever especially when we're all apart. So recently, I had a group and we had a a socially distanced barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were six feet apart. And everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we we just had a, a lovely conversation. Um, it was really fun. Yeah. And I'm with the disposable products. I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which I have used before, that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers and traditional or now not. And there are classic white products that can work for any gathering or cut crystal plates and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and cleanup easy. Chinet products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back into it. How should people, how do people need to be talking to their families, their communities about being anti-racist and what that looks like and why anti-Blackness is such a big thing and how to break that down? Maybe this is a little, I don't know if I'm going to put my foot in my mouth here, but I actually think it's our role as like real community members, people who are part of our families, right? We're not like emissaries who are going back to a backward land to like, tell truths to our parents. I think that we have to have real conversations that are empathetic, that listen, that actually inquire about our parents' experiences with power and the police and racism, things that they've experienced. Because Mm -hmm. while in the kind of social media arena, here's the oppression I experienced and I don't, like, that's why I think it justifies my anti-Blackness, that's not a helpful thing to have on Twitter. But if you're Mm -hmm. sitting around your dining table and you can have a conversation around why an experience of racism that your mom or dad had actually could be interpreted as something 
caused by white supremacy and why they should be kind of committed to this struggle, that can be really productive. And I think that we Mm -hmm. kind of can use some of the tools we have as children or siblings to be gentle, but also firm with our parents that kind of this is important to us and have the kind of like messier conversations that are sometimes... It's, it's not anyone else's work to do, I guess. Like we have to mm-hmm. get our own families. And right. often when I talk to my students, sometimes I think there's a frustration that, you know, like you go to college, you feel like your mind is blown or something, or you stumble upon your first like critical race theory manifesto. And you're so ashamed that you thought you maybe had anti-Black opinions or you had thoughts that you were ashamed of. And then your shame turns into like anger towards your community. And not a lot of understanding or empathy. And I think that we all have to work on sort of bringing people to where we are when we love them for whatever reason, right? Or I'm talking about, of course, people who are lucky enough to come from loving and supportive families who perhaps have opinions that we want um, to change, but we can kind of do that work and be patient and be thoughtful, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think, um, you know, Saloni brought up earlier the model minority myth, which is, I think, also something that we do have to actively do the work of dismantling within our own families and our own communities, because we know that that's a myth, but we also buy into it. You know, it's like believing that as Asian Americans, we are superior to Black people, which is what the model minority myth teaches us. Mm-hmm is again, something that is like propagated and used by our communities to create divisions between all of us, as much as it's used by white people who make a lot of our rules, right? But Mm -hmm. I think that also it's really important for us to level with our families too, where we can talk about the oppression, racialized oppression that also exists within different parts of Asia and obviously has forever, you know? Saloni and I are both Indian and thinking about like casteism in India and how like that is part and parcel of the white supremacy that we deal with in the United States. Like it's the same thing. It's the belief that certain kinds of people deserve opportunity to live with freedom and other people don't. And so I also think that having to deal with that kind of oppression at home is part of, again, why it might be difficult for a lot of Asians who come to the U.S. to be able to think about how we have a responsibility to stand with and for Black lives. Again, because their understanding is like, well, you know, I've dealt with so much oppression. And it's like, yeah, exactly. We have all dealt with with this oppression that obviously doesn't affect all of our communities in the same ways. But if you would fight against that, at home um, in your country of origin, why wouldn't you fight against that same kind of terror that exists here? Mm -hmm. I love that. And that's, I think that's a huge statement in itself when you start trying to talk to your family and trying to kind of put it into their terms and making sure they understand from a perspective that they can be empathetic to instead of just seeing the other. Yeah, and a perspective... That's kind of rooted in their experiences. Like Fenty's saying, you know, my dad, someone from Equality Labs actually tweeted about this and I was thinking about it a lot, but my dad grew up in Northern India and my mom grew up in Southern India and they've had very different experiences of India as a place. Mm -hmm. And my dad has a very different or a very kind of progressive analysis of why uh, Islamophobia is toxic 
and has never liked the police and has long, you know, it was not hard to convince my father that we should abolish the police. That was sort of a perspective that he was really eager to take on once we started talking about his experiences as a young man, his experiences seeing communal violence, the ways that that affected his community. Um, But I think there's something that happens in the process of immigration where all of a sudden you're crammed into a box and you're trying to kind of make relationships with the people you find in a new place. And there are fights that you feel are not yours to have. Um, I guess I'm speaking from my experience, speaking with my parents. And almost for us in having conversations, having (laughs) permission that they're allowed to care and be invested in racial justice here, that it's also their fight and that they can kind of have a stake in it, have skin in the game, mm-hmm. was totally transformative. Um, and I mm-hmm. think that they, you know, move much faster than I ever thought they would and are now, they are full Black Lives Matter. And I think that when I say meet people where they are, I don't mean coddle them, but I mean really be curious about their experiences and how their ideologies were built. Right. And of course, you know, it's helpful that my parents and I all immigrated together. So I think there is some kind of like deep trust. I think that there are probably very different conversations you would have as an adoptee. They're very different, mm-hmm. frustrating conversations I sometimes have with, you know, white family members I have that feels very different to me. Mm-hmm. So we all have to kind of figure out where we enter, uh, when and right. where we enter. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also really, you know, I've, I've just been thinking lately about how Being Asian and being a feminist and having radical politics, none of those things are antithetical to one another. And the fact of the matter is, like, our radical histories as Asian people have really been whitewashed and largely forgotten to history, which is why, like, one of the workshops that we do is, like, to examine radical Asian American feminist history, like learning about people like Grace Lee Boggs and Yuri Mm -hmm. Kochiyama and like different Asian Americans throughout history that have actively fought with and for Black lives and have really created like living examples of cross-racial solidarity and action. Our people have been fighting for justice and liberation for a very, very long time. And it's really sad that, you know, a lot of kids don't learn about that and then have a whole process of, you know, For us, we really had to seek out this knowledge. And we're obviously so lucky that we were able to go to college and that we were able to devote so much of our time uh, and like our youth to just learning. And so I think like that's part of the responsibility too of when we talk about cross-racial solidarity amongst Asian Americans and Black people to say like, this is nothing new. This has been happening for a long time. People have been having these conversations And we're not reinventing the wheel here. We're building on a long history of activists and liberation fighters who have been talking and strategizing about this movement for decades. Right. Yeah, it's kind of the the point that these different movements were not singular movements. These movements were built on each other. And, and, you know, one of the things that I had sent you guys, I know, was the uh, Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which was in part with the modern civil rights movement of why everything came about. Now, of course, that's a simple statement and just a one statement, but it is. It's like it builds on each other and it shows that this cross-racial alliance has been important and has been around, um, but it's been ignored. 
<laughs> and or, you know, talked less of, I guess, or pushed aside. And that's an unfortunate thing because I will say, until I became an adult, I didn't know much about this. And I say adult meaning 30s, so <laughs> it's been a minute. But <laughs> I wouldn't even say for me, it wasn't college. Yeah, I wouldn't even say ignored, but like strategically written out of the history that we learned. Right. Because I think it's right. pretty threatening to the way power operates right now and kind of whiteness as a structure to imagine right. a sort of real solidarity. And all of those movements were not without friction, right? There was a ton of fighting right. and there's a ton of disagreement. And one of my favorite things whenever we, whenever I teach feminism to my students is the idea that feminist praxis is actually disagreeing and trying to yeah. figure out through your differences, um, like what your values really are and who yeah. um, you're marginalizing and kind of building from that margin, right? So I think in becoming more comfortable, knowing that you don't just, you're not born with all the answers, you don't have perfect politics when you come out of the womb, you have to sort of constantly be committed to learning and growing and being told when you're wrong or causing harm and trying to mm -hmm. incorporate that into your life, only then, yeah, only then are you building the politics we want to see. Also, 1965 is so interesting because, you know, it wasn't until I went to graduate school that I even realized that the history of Asian America in the United States goes back to the 1800s, right? the 1700s. You know, George Washington used to collect China from China. And the Astor fortune is built on the Asia trade. That's what New York, mm -hmm. you know, made all its money mm -hmm. on. And so when mm -hmm. we look at an institution like the Met, it's built with, you know, black slave labor and Asian extraction. So there are all sorts of ways that white supremacy has like extracted from both of our communities and understanding that that's a long legacy and a long lineage has been really powerful for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other thing. Yeah, that's a, yeah I won't do a whole history thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to take a while. <laughs> yeah. It's a danger of talking to me after 4 p.m. I'm like, I've been reading all day. So I'm like, let's do a small <laughs> lecture. This is going to be when I'm just going to be like, hey, so I'm just going to, Skype you in and let you just talk to me. And I'm just going to take a lot of notes, okay? <laughs> yeah. You good? You good? Yeah, yeah historians are terrible people. You have to like be very careful before you let us speak. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. This is why you guys are intimidating. As I'm looking at your um, biographies, I'm like, well, sh they're going <laughs> to school me in so many ways and it's going to be a long, good day. We're just here to help. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, and I think... You were asking me a little bit of my history. My history is very, uh, my own personal stuff is a lot of unlearning um, and not necessarily, because I, I love my parents and I love who they are and I am grateful that word comes in a lot in my life and where I am today. But there's definitely a lot that I've, I've missed and a lot of missing pieces to my life that I have had to undo in the last, I'll be 40 this year, so in the last 20 years, in trying to understand what justice means, what equality means, the harm that has happened. Because, you know, this is a whole other conversation when we talk about interracial adoption, intercultural adoption, and, and what can be harmful and what can be helpful. And my parents did something out of a religious belief, and they're good, good intended people. And we know what that can be. And at this point in time has brought a lot of division between the two, between myself and my family. And, it, and it's very obvious. And it, honestly, it's been a growing thing since childhood uh, because being raised in pretty much an all-white town, too, and being very aware that I was the minority mm -hmm. 
and that's just as it was, and, and an understanding that I had a huge difference. It's definitely a lot of unlearning. So for me, like even in the past, I think the first 10 years in college, like outside of college or while starting at college was unlearning that my race was not a downfall mm-hmm. and not something that I should be shameful of. And then trying to build up what that means as a woman, as a feminist, what does that mean coming out of religion and into my own, I guess you can say. So it's been a whole other process, but finding organizations like yours is what kind of pushes me and makes me want to be bigger and stronger and louder. But it's definitely kind of one of those, okay, <laughs> how do I do this? Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Where's my manual? <laughs> You're doing it. You're engaged in it. Have you read Nicole Chung's book, All You Can Ever Know? No, but it's in my list. Oh, definitely. I thought it was so beautiful. I, I'm just curious what you thought but, or what you will no, think. So no. you have to email me when you read it. I will. Okay. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join this group now. I'm going to be their friends. They don't know this, yet. this is just the whole plot. This is honestly, my podcasting life is my plot to just find new friends. Well, this is, is now true. we're in relationship. You know? It's definitely working for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Annie knows. Annie knows the bigger plot. It's not actually to be on a podcast. It's to find new friends and good friends. And then just be like, can I be your best friend? <laughs> We have a little bit more for you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for word from our sponsor. Got to tell you about Best Fiends. It's a game pretty much everybody's talking about. Morgan number two plays it sometimes before we start the show. You know, it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles, but it's also a very casual game, so it won't stress you out which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and tons of characters to collect. You know, there are new in-game challenges and events every month, so the game's always fresh. You'll never be bored with it. You can even play the game without using Wi-Fi. So here we go. You don't want to miss out on the game. Join millions of Americans and a lot of us here on the show who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free, Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends without the R, Best Fiends. This episode of Stuff I Never Told You is brought to you by Catan. This summer looks a lot different than most. We're staying at home for the most part, and many events we usually look forward to are canceled. We find ourselves looking for new activities to enjoy at home. Catan is a board game for three to four players ages 10 and up, although many younger kids can play with initial adult guidance. It's a great way to keep families engaged and off screens, even if it is just for a little while. And those opportunities are hard to come by. Unlike the roll your dice, move your mice games, this is a little different. What are your experiences? The first time I played Catan was at our office game night, and it was so fun. It was quick to pick up. It was easy. It was social. We made it really competitive because we're a competitive group, but you don't have to. And what I thought was just going to be a, a short game among friends turned into an epic game night that we shall remember forever. <laughs> hours we played, hours. And uh, yes, I lost, but I had fun. You had fun. <laughs> well, obviously, it keeps you really social. And like you said, it is really easy to pick up, which is really nice right now. This year is the 25th anniversary of Catan. Get Catan at catanshop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code 
mom at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So thank you guys so much. I love this conversation. Just awaken so many things uh, in me when we have conversations like this and just opening up barriers and just being very real and honest about not only our identity, but what it is to be an advocate and to fight and to push forward. What are some advice for people like myself and others out there who are unlearning things, one, and trying to build up and trying to be an advocate and fighter? What would your advice be for those ladies out there or those who identify as females? Yeah, this is something that I have been giving a lot of thought to. um, And I'm really brought back to a few weeks ago, I was at a campaign event for someone who was running for a state Senate seat um, here in Brooklyn. And, you know, it was really at the height of a lot of these uprisings for racial justice. And there was this Black organizer who came up to speak and You know, he was looking out at this crowd of people that was multiracial and, you know, had a lot of white people and a lot of non-Black people of color. And he said, you can't love what you don't know. And so, you know, I think that when we think about solidarity being about relationships, you know, ask yourself, like, who are the Black people in your life that you love? Do you have Black people in your life that you love, respect, admire, that you will fight for beyond just words and donations, but that you will actually be committed to creating a whole new framework of what it means to be in relationship and build solidarity. I think that even in a city like New York, obviously, we are so segregated. And I really don't think that you can actively fight for Black lives if you don't actually have Black people in your life that you love. And so, I think that when we think about solidarity, beginning with relationships, like build those relationships and do that listening and make yourself useful. Yeah, definitely make yourself useful. And I think overwhelmingly went, so, you know, reading, learning, thinking, sitting, reflecting, all very good. And when you're ready to take some punches, I would just say like punch up. That's my number one piece of advice. I see a lot of kind of baby activists sort of sniping at each other sometimes. And I think in the Asian American community, it's sometimes very easy to go after other Asian Americans in who you're going to critique or who you're going to be frustrated with because it's challenging work that takes a lot of personal growth to kind of do. So just think about like, what are the structures you're attacking? Um, Go after those. Like, what are the harms you're trying to correct? Go after those. But I, I definitely agree with Senti. I think that a politics of love are kind of critical to doing movement work that feels long-term and feels really hard and sometimes requires you to be like brave and it's not glamorous and it doesn't feel good and it might feel like you're giving up something even. But you have to have a vision of like who you're giving that up for and who you're building a better world for. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so true about many people that unless they have an actual personal connection, they don't understand the whole picture, the bigger depth of the picture. So thank you so much. Annie, do you have anything? Because I've definitely been taking over, fangirling a little bit, a little bit nervous here. It's great. It's great. <laughs> um, well, I always like to close out with if, if there's anything that we haven't touched on that you would like to touch on that you feel is really important to share, 
And then also, what do you have, if there's anything in the future for yourself, both personally or for the Asian American Feminist Collective that you would like to share? We would love to share that. We would love to hear that. I just thought of one other thing that I think that we can all commit to doing in terms of kind of like using our privilege for good, but it's kind of sharing the institutional knowledge we have. I've been thinking a lot about, I don't know if I'm going to mispronounce her name, but there's this woman on Twitter, Tammy Teclamarian. She's a journalist. She's a wine professional who's been sort of exposing these like horrible white male editors um, at Bon Appetit and Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. Peter Meehan at the LA Times food section. And I've been thinking about how like people get media jobs and how people build careers and why we see certain places like academia or um, entertainment or media are like so overwhelmingly white. And I think it's because of the lack of like institutional knowledge sharing. So something that I think that we can do in addition to donating and, you know, being out on the streets is sort of being really transparent about what goes into things, how people should either be negotiating or how structures work, how you got where you are. It was wonderful when you sent us that email being sort of like, we'll be paying you for this. That was kind of a, you know, I think it's that kind of work that's also important about sharing the things that you've learned and the things that people maybe shared with you because of your position, um, that now you have the opportunity to share more widely and stop guarding as like carefully won institutional knowledge. Sort of a strange thing to end on, but I was thinking about it. I think that's very relevant. Yeah. For sure. Santi, I don't know if you have our upcoming greatest hits to think about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, but I'm happy to share a little bit about how people can stay in touch with AFC and our work and stuff. Um, so people can learn more about the Asian American Feminist Collective at asianamfeminism.org um, or on our Instagram page at aafc.nyc. We have a tiny letter that goes out periodically, and we also are doing a lot of different kinds of virtual events and engagements until our lives go back to some kind of normal. Um, And so we'll be pushing out a lot of information on our channels about different events and collaborations that we're doing. And we're always looking to grow our community. We believe that everybody has a place and a voice with us. And if you'd like to learn more about us, please get in touch. People can find me on Instagram at Senti underscore Naro and at Senti Narwhal on Twitter. I love that. Yeah. And people can find me at Saloni, S-A-L-O-N-E-E on Instagram. I'm just my own name. And um, on Saloni with three E's at, on Twitter. And that brings us to the end of this delightful interview. I'm so glad that you found them and brought them on the show, Samantha. I've already told them. and I keep telling people my scheme, but yeah, I'm just trying to find new friends and uh, I'm so excited to add them to my friend list. I think you're doing an excellent job. Thank you. This is my <laughs> whole mission, you know this, just to get more friends. I think I said that from the very beginning. I never lied. You, you know what? I appreciate that about you. You were very <laughs> upfront about your goals. You said, I'm never going to leave. I did. And I just want friends. And look at this. <laughs> it happened. It's like my wish list. And so, Cinti and Solani, thank you so much for coming on um, and talking with us and sharing with us your massive amount of resources and knowledge. It's so fantastic uh, to be able to bring people on who can share so much. Yes. And go check out the work that they're doing. And if you have someone that you think we should check out or if you are someone doing something that you think 
we should check out, please, please let us know. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You or on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Thanks to our guest. Thanks to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks, Burger Face. <laughs> and thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Paper Ghosts is a true crime podcast that investigates the search for the person responsible for the abductions of four missing girls in neighboring New England towns. For more than 50 years, each case has remained unsolved. Every day is like being lost in limbo. I pray every day that we find Lisa so we can go on. It wasn't until this past year that things took an unexpected turn, a breakthrough. Answers to decades-old questions and witnesses finally ready to talk. I know that that's the person that was there. I can describe what he's wearing. I can smell him a mile away. Jesus, Mary, and Josephine, I hope that's not a grave for many. Oh, you know what? I think it is. Listen to Paper Ghosts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Heilman, host of the podcast, Hell and High Water, from The Recount. America in 2020 feels like apocalypse now, again. In this podcast, I'll explore the turmoil and upheaval roiling the country. You've heard the phrase, come hell or high water? Well, right now we're facing both hell and high water, and it's going to leave a mark. To understand this moment better, I'm calling on the people who shape our culture. In politics, entertainment, business, tech, and beyond, to talk through what we've lost, what comes next, and what needs to change and how we can turn these overlapping crises into an opportunity to reimagine and rebuild everything that's broken, meaning pretty much everything. So join me every Tuesday for a series of conversations, raw and real, unrehearsed and unpredictable, about this mess we're in and figuring out how to pull together and rise above it. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Listen to Hell and High Water on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.